0: Hello everyone and welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach and I am your host for the ongoing telecouncil series Thursdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, Restorative Justice on the Rise, sponsored by the Peace Alliance. This archive is from March 7, 2013 and features Master Police Officer Greg Ruprecht of the Longmont, Colorado Police Department. We had an extraordinary conversation with Greg We really appreciate the fact that he's helping to bridge the systems of restorative justice as an advocate who had initial skepticism. You'll find out more in this archive, what a dialogue we had, and what an interesting story and powerful bridge he does provide in this field. For more information about the series and for all of our archives and upcoming guest speakers, please go to DoPeace.us, that's D-O-P-E-A-C-E. We look forward to seeing you and hearing from you in the future. Thank you, and enjoy this archive with police officer Gregory Ruprecht.
1: Welcome, everyone, and good evening to this week's edition of Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is, of course, your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and... Just welcoming you all to this live, free, ongoing weekly telecounsel series sponsored by the Peace Alliance. We come on at 5 p.m. Pacific every Thursday, excepting a few Thursdays here and there. We also offer a growing set of archives uh, for the, the last two seasons that we've been doing this series, including powerful conversations such as the one we had with Dr. Johan Galtung in January, Arun Gandhi, Dominic Barter, Kate Pranis, Dr. Carl Stoffer, Sujata Baliga, and people from uh, various aspects of restorative justice and moving it really in a, a positive direction from various places within the field. We just want to honor everybody on this call, too, because we know that many of you are active in your own way, in moving forward, restorative justice and practices. Please access those archives that I just mentioned by going to do that's dopeace.us, that's D O P E A C E.us, mouse over the restorative justice tab, which is at the far right hand corner of the menu. You'll see a drop down menu come down, and you'll find guest speakers upcoming, you'll find archives, you'll find resources. And um, we hope that you find those useful, connective, and educational. Um, So before I get into uh, introducing our incredible guest tonight, I just want to say a few words and take a, a quick survey. One of the things that the Peace Alliance and myself have been developing for this series is more of an interactive multimedia facet you should have gotten in your, uh, your reminder email tonight for tonight's call um, a link that takes you to a screen share. And I'm just going to ask you, if you got that link and you feel comfortable using it tonight, could you press 1 on your telephone keypad? Or if you're Skyping in, of course, 1 on that keypad. So just simply, if you got that link for your screen share and you feel comfortable using it tonight, press 1 on your telephone keypad. Okay. All right, great. So it looks like more of you may not have uh, been aware of this, this facet, but we'll, um, we'll po- probably break out before the end of tonight's call for a bonus couple minutes of a video that features our special guest tonight. I'd like to try out uh, using multimedia. It's such a powerful form of connecting people. And our special guest tonight, Master Police Officer Greg Ruprecht, from the Longmont Police Department has a powerful video that's been posted up on YouTube for a couple of years now. But just to kind of seg into the introduction of him, I'd like to say that this video that I'm speaking to is the first um, information and uh, the initial introduction that I had to Officer Ruprecht's work with the Longmont Police Department and subsequent restorative justice programming that they link with um, and integrate within their programs, which we're going to get into quite a bit together tonight. Um, The video is powerful because it speaks to, and of course I'm going to invite him to talk about this more, it speaks to the bare facts that restorative justice makes sense, that there's um, evidence coming from within the law enforcement systems that shows recidivism is reduced, and other statistics and things that he'll share tonight very specifically. I just, I just have so much respect for his service as um, a former member of the Army and also a master police officer, and just say a few more things about him and then welcome him into the dialogue tonight. So, Officer Greg Ruprecht is a, a master police officer with a municipal Colorado police department. He has 11 years police experience, and currently serves as a patrol officer. MPO Ruprecht's current duties also include service as a department firearms instructor and Play It Safe program at elementary school presenter. He also has previous experience as a SWAT tactical team officer, a SWAT sniper, and gang and crime suppression unit officer. He is a veteran of the U.S. Army. So without further ado, Officer Greg Ruprecht, it is such an honor and pleasure to have you with us tonight on Restorative Justice on the Rise. The honor is
2: all mine. I appreciate you inviting me to to share this time with everybody across the country tonight.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with us. And if you might start start us out tonight with a bit of background and, and the story of how how you got into this line of work.
2: Oh, well, um, I've been a police officer for a little bit over 11 years now, Um, directly out of high school. I followed a dream of mine as most young boys with far too much testosterone, and I joined the military, um, where I served in the U.S. Army for four years and um, got to spend some time over in the first conflict over in the, the East, over in Desert Storm. Um, When I got out um, of the military, I wasn't sure if I would stay out, but I knew I wanted to spend some time um, getting my college degree. So I
3: came out to Colorado and went to
2: the University of Colorado Boulder where I met my wife and uh, at that point decided um, the military wasn't going to be a good fit for the two of us together. Um, She wanted to have me around rather than have me being deployed, which I could understand. (laughs) So a second dream of mine. Um, was to become a police officer, and uh, after several years of trying to convince her that I would be safe in doing my duties, um, she gave me her her blessing and allowed me to pursue that career goal. Um, after I became a police officer, I was in uh, early two thousand two I uh, served as most officers do as a you know strictly a patrol officer, and from there, I kind of did the fast track and joined the SWAT team two years after that. Served on the SWAT team as an entry um, person, as a gas operator, then also as a, a SWAT sniper. After leaving the SWAT team, I kind of missed the excitement of that, so I joined uh, the department's Gang and Crime Suppression Unit, where we focused on dealing solely with uh, juvenile and youth gangs within the city. And following that, I went back to the patrol world, where I'm, I'm happy now leave up I stay there at least for a few years before trying on a new hat.
1: Mm. Well, thank you for your service to to that, you know, immediate community as well as to the greater community in our country and um, I think about this video that so influenced me last year when I first saw it and it still influences me and I just want to say again, um, in, you can access that video on our RJ Resources tab, which is a sub tab to the main menu at Do Peace. So that's permanently housed there, the video of Officer Ruprecht. And in that video, you speak about um, it starts out, you, you talk about your initial doubts of restorative justice. Can you, can you take us back to when you first learned? about restorative justice and what that was like for you?
2: Absolutely. You, you know, police officers are, uh, I won't say a different breed of people, but it, it's definitely a, a different, not a different, but a, a certain personality type. And that that personality type, part of the the trait that we have is we, you know, we 100% believe in the laws of the land and enforcing those laws. And as a new police officer back in 2002, coming out of the academy, um, it's really ingrained in you through the academy and the system, but then also through just your personality traits that caused you to want to become a police officer. Two, you want to hit the ground running. You want to find even the smallest of crimes, and you want to, you want to find those people, you want to arrest those people, and you want to make those people pay. And by making them pay, you want to make them go to jail, because that at the time you believe that is your job. That's what you're you know you're put on earth to do, and that's what the people expect of you, the department expects of you, and and so you just do it, and you have a lot of energy to go forward with that. Um, and I was that person. <laughs> I was I was 200 percent that person. I was a go-getter, a hard charger, um, until one night. <laughs> I, uh, I had an experience. I was working the graveyard shift, which is the overnight shift, and that's where most new officers end up going when they get out of the academy. And I, my, my beat or my district within the city um, is where I would patrol, you know, and I was the only car out on the street, you know, two, three in the morning. And I came upon a, a large factory um, which had some open doors, which was not normal for this building. And as I came through the lot to investigate what might have been going on with that, I had about six to eight people run from the door, not listen to my barking commands to stop because I'm the police. And they ran into a, uh, a tall grass field just to the north side of the building. And at that time, I'm investigating now a felony crime, a burglary. Someone has been inside of a building they're not supposed to be inside. And now they've run from me. It's dark, I don't know who they are or what they what their plans are, what they might want to do to me being that lone police officer out there with them in the field. And then they did the worst thing they could do, they laid down in the tall grass and hid. Um so I drew my you know, I drew my side arm and my pistol, I aired over the radio that I needed emergency cover, meaning everybody in the is gonna come. And eventually they did, and and I had these folks stand up, and it was all a bunch of young men about the ages ten to thirteen years old. Wow, And I was thinking, my my goodness, the, these boys, they are going to jail, these are felonies, and in the state of Colorado, you're you're culpable for a crime that, as of the age of ten, you can be held responsible for it through the criminal justice system. But at that time, I had this strange feeling wash over me that I, I wasn't put on the earth to be a police officer to punish 10 to 13 year old boys who were doing something that I probably would have done as a youth. And I thought there's gotta be something different that I can do, but, I, but they have to learn a lesson. Well, so I gave the uh, restorative justice, which in our city is uh, called the LCJP program. I decided I'd give it a try and uh, it had fantastic results with it.
1: So Greg, how how was the police department linked up with the Longmont Community Justice Partnership? Was that something that had been implemented previous to your coming on board, or how did that relationship develop?
2: Yeah, that had been developed prior to me coming on board, but our our administrative staff and our chief of police um, very much believed in the restorative justice program when they were approached with it. Um, So much in fact that they allowed the program to use offices within our police department, our municipal building. And uh, they formed a very strong relationship to where our department from the chief down actually highly promoted it and wanted officers to use it. But there were problems with that. (laughs) Those problems go back to what I was speaking to earlier, police officers just as a group of individuals, they're a little apprehensive to try a program like that because to them it, it feels like it might be soft or it's something that as, as people here, because we're close to the city of Boulder, which is a very liberal city with a lot of you know still kind of the quote unquote hippie type folks. <laughs> Of all generations, they looked at it as it being bad. it was just some feel good we'll come together and we'll hug each other and you'll apologize and I'll forgive you and and the world will be a better place and That's the way officers viewed it, but things have changed progressively to today, which I can show you later with our statistics.
1: Mm. so since you brought it up, that's you know this is one of the the linchpins of integrating. Um, systems. Uh, the the point that you bring up around the the resistance and the claim that this is soft, or um, just you know a flaccid form of, of justice. That um, that this this just doesn't have any teeth. I've heard that expression used by a DA. Um, so I, what, what would you what do you say when you speak to your colleagues? And I know well, that you had your strong initial doubts and you expressed those eloquently on the video that I have often referred to tonight. And, and something happened for you. It, so, I, I,
2: I, gave the, I gave it a shot. I went through the process. And um, when the process came to my portion of, of participation was in what we call the circle. And that's when we have the offender, the victim, the, the officer involved, um, a volunteer community member um, and we, we we had this meeting where, where the, the offenders had to speak to the group initially as to what they had done and admit what they did was wrong and, and basically that they wanted to make it right, they wanted to repair what they'd done. And I thought as we're starting this process. Um, Everybody's talking so nicely, this is going to end in a hug, and I'm just going to have to sit here, and I'm going to have to be very serious, and I'm going to have to make a point to these kids and to their families and to the community members and to the victims that um, I'm the serious, stern officer who's, who's going to lay out that proverbial tongue lashing to let them know how bad they are but that I gave them this chance and um, almost like a look at me, how nice I am, I let you do this. But it didn't turn out to be that way. I actually found myself through that process, even wanting to resist it being my first time going through it, I found myself more into almost like a parent role, and I wasn't a parent at the time. I started to realize as everyone was speaking that I have an opportunity here to educate not only the boys as to what they did was wrong and what could have happened, but I actually had a a big part in educating the parents of all those kids. Because parents oftentimes, their children get in trouble, they imagine, you know, Tommy did a bad thing, Um, it's going to cost us a little bit of money to make it right, and that's the end of it. But with me being able to speak as long as I wanted to, and I can speak, sometimes not so clearly, but being able to speak to the kids and their parents, I was actually able to show the parents that it it goes beyond your kids breaking the law. It goes into, especially on this one with them running into the fields and my canine officers, the police dogs coming, um, the terrible things that could have happened that were a result of the crime that they committed, but were, were millions fold worse than anything that could have happened inside that building. And, uh, you know, I have to be honest, I'm a very serious, driven, stern person if I need to be, but I almost felt myself like I was going to break down, like I was going to, to shed a tear. My voice started to crack as I explained to these people, you know, what had happened. And that was a... Transforming moment in my police career, and luckily for me, it happened very soon into my career. It was probably only less than a year into the career. It had a major impact on me.
1: So, since uh, since really um, restorative justice programming isn't some sort of proselytizing kind of um, movement here, we're not trying to you know make conversions or anything. But rather, we're we're trying to um, provide uh, a win-win solution while still holding offenders accountable um, and a transmission of meaning of, of what that you know what the cause and effect was when conflict and crime occur. Um, I just you know it, it just strikes me that you're you you act as a powerful bridge for other police officers and law enforcement officers and departments, not only, you know, who are within the police forces of Colorado, but beyond and, and probably including corrections as well. Um, you know, it, it, it seems like once the proof occurs, there's, um, there's, there's great power, what, you know, and you, and you come with statistics tonight and just by being who you are, and your experiences provide um, a, a powerful voice for you know providing an an alternative possibility that saves money, and like you're going to be sharing in a bit um, the statistics of recidivism and other aspects of, of why this just makes sense, and that it's not about trying to to say that you know, you have to do this or that you're wrong, but rather working together to find what what probably could be uh, an even better version of the kind of justice that we have now. Do you right. have any comments on what I'm saying? I do. it's,
2: and this kind of goes back to, you know, the question you just previously asked me um, where, you know, you talked about it, people are, you Police officers, and like you said, the DA that you talked about didn't have it. It didn't have any teeth. What I've actually found since I started becoming involved in the program and referring people to it, and just having more exposure to that, and on the flip side, having more exposure to actually the criminal justice system, how it works as far as you know, going through the courts and parole, or sorry, not parole first, but probation, sending people to jail, and you know, if it's parole, and I can say with absolute certainty that the restorative justice process actually has more keys than the criminal justice system it does itself. Because when, when if I fire arrest an individual and I, I actually arrest them and put them through the system, typically what they're going to run into, even if they're not a first time offender, this could be their fifth or sixth offense, and I can give you an example. They, they typically, because the criminal justice system, that court system is so overburdened and understaffed, they, they normally will, will never see a trial. They will just enter into a plea deal with the district attorney's office, and that plea deal normally brings their charges to a lesser degree, but then just puts them into the probation system. And it it punishes them by making them come to a meeting whether it be you know weekly or monthly um or some sort of um, you know controlled substance program so they they never have to admit they did anything wrong they just have to talk to the da and have their charges lowered get probation and each week they go to that meeting, or each month they go to that meeting, or each time they have to pay the $25 for a class. It just builds up that anger in them because they're being punished. And on the flip side, with restorative justice, these people come through the meeting, they, they enter into a contract of how to repair the harm they've done, and it, and it they have that community service uh, portion to it, um, just like the probation would. but all of the things that they have to do are actually more time intensive than what the criminal justice system gives them. But in the end, the person who goes through the criminal justice side despises the police, despises the community that said what they did was wrong and forced them into some sort of a punishment. But on the restorative justice side, they actually form relationships with the police officers and see that we have a heart. They get to see that the community member that they offended against actually has a heart and only wants the best for them and doesn't want them punished in any way. They just want them to see what they did was wrong and make it better. So the, these people work harder to get through the contracts that we all agree on through our program as opposed to, at least in my county, the criminal justice system. So it's the, the comment the a notice. It, uh I can see where people would think that when they're not exposed to it, but if you're exposed to it, you see that there, there's a lot more teeth, but the teeth on the restorative justice side are not sharp fangs like they are on the criminal justice side. Mm. They're, they're, they're more rounded, mm-hmm. nice teeth.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and in some ways, it's, it's much more difficult to face front and face the truth and speak to it um, in, in the way that, that these processes uh, involve. Um, it's it's much easier to be isolated from the situation than to face these things, and uh, I'd love it if you would share, perhaps, uh, what we might call a success story where there might be an example of um, one of the the kids who went out and perhaps their um, contract involved uh, a relationship with the the victim or the related people in kind of a similar essence from from what their original offense was. Do you have any stories like that?
2: I I do actually. I uh, would you be willing to, to share? <laughs> oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> great. Uh, several years ago, when I was on the the Gang and Crime Suppression Unit, um, part of our job was not only in uniform, but a great portion was in plain clothes. In a, not so much an undercover role, but uh not being seen by those we don't want to be seen by, and um, our our gang members, much like across the country, um, spend a great deal of their time you know with their graffiti, their tagging, their gang signs, their slogans, um, on buildings, fences, and on on this particular day, I caught two of our young men, the gang members. They were spray painting onto a, a private residence's, you know, their six-foot uh, privacy fence, which backed up to a kind of a greenway walkway through the city. And you know, they were not happy to be caught. Um, they had had actually had, had history with with the gang unit for several years, um, so these weren't weren't necessarily anything close to a first offender. Um, but when we caught them and we talked to the the nice gentleman and his wife whose fence had been tagged or spray painted, um, initially they were very upset and wanted nothing to do with restorative justice. Um, they thought, like you had said, that there was no teeth, that you know there was nothing that could happen to that, these kids. And uh, we just took the time to explain it to them that day. We didn't walk away until we had a chance to explain it to them. And we got them to, to agree to participate and these two gang members of course agreed. Um, because they didn't want any more criminal charges on their records, um, and I say that, in, and I don't, I'm not trying to belittle restorative justice by saying, of course they agreed, because th- these were two, kind of, these kids were on the path to uh, spending the rest of their lives in prison. I guess is a nice way of saying it. So we went through the process. They got to sit in on the restorative justice circle. Um, hear everyone in the room speak. and as a part of their contract, they ended up doing gardening with the husband and wife in there in the husband and wife of the uh, you know the the victims, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had to spend time doing labor in their backyard, but also spending a lot of time talking as they were doing it. The husband and wife were very they were parents themselves, their kids had been you know grown and out of the house, but um, they ended all. All of them ended up having a fantastic time together, and most of all, they all learned a or gained a different level of respect for one another. Not just the offenders respecting the victims; that these are nice, normal human beings that we we did harm to. People who care about their home, have kids themselves, but also the victims who, prior to that that experience, they had with these gang members. We're kind of viewing all, and they were, they were Hispanic gang members, viewing all of the, the youth Hispanics in our city as being those, those evil bad gang members. So they got to see that yes, these are gang members, but they're really not that bad of people. And there's a, you know we can give them a chance and give them a choice. And it was a, it was a great experience to see that kind of you know, come to fruition because I really, on that one, I really wasn't sure that it would be completed and it would be finished. So it was a surprise to me.
1: Have you seen those young men since?
2: I have seen those young men since. And uh, they are much better human beings than they ever were. And, mm. and I can tell you this, where, whereas they never had a loss of words for myself or my counterparts in the olden days, um, now they might have no loss for words, but it's in good conversation when we run into them.
1: Mm i just want to take a pause for a moment here you're with us on restorative justice on the rise Um, welcome to all the council members tonight that have dialed in from wherever you're calling in from and we're talking with master police officer greg ruprecht of the longmont police department and um, just again you, uh, you as a council member have an opportunity to participate in the this next half hour if you have a comment or a question you'd like to ask Officer Ruprecht, or just a, a comment out to the council itself, please press one on your telephone keypad from here until the closing of tonight's uh, council together. So, Greg, let's go, into, um, <clears throat> let's go into kind of the ground level processes for a moment. I, um, I know that a lot of people, restorative justice is fairly new and then there's a lot of people who have, have been working with it in process for quite some time. So we have a really diverse council background in this field. And it's interesting, I think, to hear from people like yourself, how, how does this actually work? Who initiates it? If you could just give us a quick synopsis of, of, I mean, I know that you've already been talking about the pieces and parts, but line it up for us briefly, and then sure. give us a little bit of an idea of how how other police departments might start something like this. And then a little bit later we'll go into statistics.
2: Okay, sure. Yeah, the the process um, starts with us, you know, police officers or law enforcement, responding to some sort of a call for service, some sort of a crime has been committed. Um, When we make contact with the offender, the person who committed that crime, if they are honest and open and they admit to what they did, they take ownership for what they did. Um, at that point, we will approach the the victims and explain their sort of justice program to them and ask them if they would be interested in participating. From that point, we, we still write up our police reports documenting that the crime had occurred However, we don't file any charges. We don't. We don't. We don't make an arrest, or we don't issue a a ticket or a summons. Um, from then, we give their, the offender's contact information to our restorative justice folks um, at LCJP, and we also give the victims' information to the restorative justice folks. And the restorative justice folks, in the next in the several weeks following that, will contact both the victims and the offenders really deeply explain the process to them, and they'll do some some pre-circle conferences with the both the victim and the offender. We will all get together for the circle, like I explained earlier, which will have the victim, the offender, community members, um, usually two moderators in the room that work with LCJP. And then the police officer that was involved in the case will come and if for some reason the officer can't make it, we have officers who have volunteered to be liaisons so that they could get a last minute phone call um, or an email and say, hey, Officer Rupert can't make it tonight. Um, would you be able to fill in in the law enforcement role for that meeting? So during the circle, after we all discussed what had happened, the harm and a way to repair it, everyone in the room, to include the offenders, have to agree on what we're gonna do to repair the harm. And so there's a lot of discussion and suggestion amongst everyone in the room as to what would be the best way to do that. And again, including the offender, they have just as much say. When we all agree, then a contract is actually written out. And the contract spells out what they need to do to repair the harm and the time frame is to do that. And at the end of that night, everyone in the room, to include the offenders, sign the contract. And say, for example, they're given a 90-day period to um, to do all the things that we have all agreed upon. Our restorative justice folks at LCJP monitor their progress, and at the end of the 90 days, if that was the time frame given, if they've completed all of the things inside of their contract, then they notify the law enforcement officer who had charges on them, and let the, they let us know. Um, You know, John and and Tom have completed their contract and this case is now closed. On the other side, and it doesn't happen very often, if they do not complete their contract, then the case is referred back to the law enforcement officer that had the charges. And we have the option of then filing the charges um, as if we would have on the first day, Um, or speaking to the, the offender more um, and we can ultimately we can make a decision to charge or not to charge, based on um, the feelings of maybe the victims, um, the offenders, and some other things they may have been doing, and how we see um, our interaction with them. If it was positive, and we believe that we've made a good impact, and they had some extenuating circumstances and couldn't complete their contract, and we'll 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 close the case. The, the benefit to them, other than not just being in the criminal justice system, is the offenders do not have those criminal charges show up anywhere on their criminal history or their record and and that goes from petty offense crimes all the way to felony crimes, but they have the opportunity to you know not have that follow them the rest of their lives. Wow, but as far as getting other departments involved it it certainly starts with with the command level, you know, folks, you know, depending on the department, the commanders, the the chiefs, the lieutenant, getting them on board in some sort of capacity, and sorry to, you know, it doesn't sound right because I didn't like it at first. But you really you need those folks to to really push it on the officers, and they're not going They may not enjoy it at first because just like. You know, myself when I was a new officer, oh, this just isn't right, this isn't what police work is. But you just have to kind of keep gently pushing it at them and get them exposed to it in order to let them see like I did, oh, my, this is a fantastic system. Um, one thing we didn't have was we didn't have any any sort of go-to or spokespeople at our department as far as on the officer, the line level. Those that are going to be doing the restorative justice process, and I think we were lucky as as our department moved on over the years and and more and more people accepted it. uh, I think it would be a benefit to other departments to if those if those departments had a resource to draw on from a department that had success with the program to have an officer come visit and give a presentation. You know, a presentation maybe like we're doing you know tonight on the phone, just to show them that. You know normal officers just like you didn't behave like you don't believe now um give it a try and, and you'll see how it really does make a difference.
1: Mhm well, I'd like to pause for a moment and uh open up the line here. Jim, you're live and welcome
3: thanks thanks for taking the call. <clears throat> I'm wondering if you guys have figured out a way to a, an effective way to deal with the uh, gang leaders who for the my experience are 25- to 35-year-old guys that are making a lot of money and using these kids as pawns and do not much favor this restorative justice approach any more than young police officers do. Have you figured out how to deal with that?
2: You know, to be honest, we haven't. Um, the the OGs, the original gangsters, the, you know, the guys, that age group that you're referring to, they've been in the system for, for so long, back to when they were, you know, probably just turned, just got into their teenage years. And I, I hate to call them it, but they are they're criminals to the bone, that's all they know is is the criminal lifestyle. And I, and I wish I had a better answer and didn't have to give you that one, but we have not had any sort of inroads with restorative justice or with the criminal justice system. In, in in making these guys see the light and pulling them out of what they're up to, is that is that an experience you you've also shared?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, with young kids, you can get them to sit in circle and do all that. But if if, if they're in, you know if they're if they're killing each other because they're heavy duty guys, the the leaders are making a lot of money and they're not interested in <clears throat> they're they're not any more interested than a lot of the lawyers that I work with. Um are interested in having mediators resolve problems really quickly because it costs some money
2: yeah yeah we're lucky in in our city that we have a a city sponsored youth center that has um, has folks on salary that work for the city that are gang interventionists and they do a lot of uh, a lot of after school programs and weekend programs from um, from the music recording with the mixing board that was donated to sporting activities. Um, so they they do have a lot of a lot of luck with keeping these kids away once once we can kind of get our hands on them and show them that their lifestyle isn't the best and you know and you know just as well as I do that most of those young guys they know that they don't want to spend the rest of their life doing what they've been exposed to but they're stuck because you know their parents were involved and their cousins their brothers their friends so it's that's, that's probably the toughest thing out there
3: yeah Coach Pete Carroll had the best answer that I've heard which is he. Went to alumni at USC and found jobs for these kids and offered them a way out that way. I thought that was probably about as bright and brilliant a way of as as I know of.
2: Right, I agree with you.
1: And just just for for you, Jim, and for everyone, and you probably already know about this, but the film "The Interrupters" from Chicago. Yeah. yeah. Are you familiar with that film?
3: Yeah. Well, you've talked about it in your program.
1: <laughs> right. I'm 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 a big fan. Of the work that they're doing up there, and um, the Peace Alliance actually has hosted film screenings of *The Interrupters*, and it's a powerful model uh, of, you know, some successful cases, some not so successful, but uh, some very powerful cases that have been transformed in in this area um, that you're talking about. Uh, So, for those of you that haven't heard of that movie, again, it's called *The The Interrupters*. It's a documentary.
3: Well, thanks for all that you're doing. You're doing good work. Well,
2: thank, you,
1: thank you very Jim. much.
2: I appreciate.
1: It. So, Greg, uh, drum roll. Let's talk statistics.
2: Okay. <laughs>
1: this is such a key theme. Um, you know, we've we've been doing this series for quite some time now, and it's very clear that that across the board, the more statistics we have, the more it will augment the case. For restorative justice, uh, along with powerful stories and experiences like yours, and just the growing wave that we're seeing in um, North America of uh, of the the integration and implementation of these systems, so uh, mm-hmm. let's talk statistics, and I'll let you just kind of cover what you what you've got there.
2: Okay. Yeah. You know, the statistic I like to always begin with is the client recidivism or our offender recidivism rates. Um, Boulder County, where where my department is located, um, has five cities included within it. And the recidivism rate within Boulder County is 50%. And that means that from the time of their offense, within the next year, that same person will again be arrested. In the city of Longmont, because of our, our heavy use of the restorative justice program, our recidiv- recidivism rate is 10%. So we're looking from 50% to a 10% non-recidivism. That's a tough word for my tongue tonight.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, which, which to, to, add, to add some impact to those numbers from 50% to 10% out of the cities in our county, Longmont puts 75% of the folks into the county jail. So our city is the most active criminally um, out of the cities within within our county. So for us to have such a lower civism rate is is amazing. And you know another thing I like to speak to is of course we probably speak of that first is uh, the victim satisfaction with our restorative justice program. Um, ultimately the two most important people in, in our process are the victim and the offenders. We wanna change behaviors of our offenders, but we also, we need to have our victims, they have to be happy with it. They have to gain that healing from this whole process. And so right now, our, I'll read through a few of the numbers, our victim satisfaction, and these are the 2007, 2008, and 2009 numbers, uh, are, as far as very satisfied, 76% of our victims are very satisfied. The next number is 22% are satisfied, and of course you have that small 2% that are very dissatisfied. So, all but 2% are satisfied to very satisfied, which which anyone now who's listening in, in the criminal justice term for law enforcement knows, normally victims through the criminal justice system their only satisfaction that they obtain are from, you know, seeing the individual punished. And even to that end, there's really truly no satisfaction when someone goes to prison for for something that they've done against you. Uh, Now back to our offenders. As far as the very satisfied, 55% are very satisfied, 42% are satisfied, and then we have 3% broken down into 2% are dissatisfied and 1% are very dissatisfied. And I don't have the proof of this, but I would venture to guess that the ones that are very dissatisfied or dissatisfied are the ones who weren't able to complete their agreements and ultimately, you know, were charged. So then they're coming from the point of they're being now about to be punished, so they're not happy with with the system in any way, shape, or form. a big portion of the restorative justice process is the community, because there's not only a victim that is an offender, but every crime affects the community as a whole. So we, we have numbers on our community member satisfaction, and 77% of them are very satisfied, 22% satisfied, and then that 1% dissatisfied. So you can see uh, it, the, the program as it's run, at least through LCJP, and I'm sure countrywide is, it's making people happy. I, I don't have any sort of th- statistics I wish I did, um, as to satisfaction and dissatisfaction um, from those same th- gr- three groups. Um, once a case goes through the criminal justice process all the way to, to uh, you know, sentencing, I, I highly doubt we would see those numbers being as high as they are as far as all three groups being very satisfied or satisfied. And the question always came up in mind as to when we put people through these processes, what sort of a completion rate do we have? Meaning if they complete it, they've satisfied all the requirements and no criminal charges ever brought. And we would have broken down by age group. Um, But I, I can tell you without going through every age group and taking all the time tonight, um, our numbers range, if I if I look for the lowest number of completion, so this is from age seven to the 25 plus age group, so covering every age, the lowest number of completions amongst any of those age groups is 71%, and of course our highest is 100, but most of those numbers are in the upper 80s, 88%, up to 100%, so the completion rate is is extremely high for the program. And I, I wish I had statistics as to how much money was saved, not just money saved with officer man hours as far as on the line level from us having to go to preliminary hearings and go to trials and all of the wonderful court proceedings we get to go to. Best that we, um, the restorative justice process normally takes to meet beyond uh, circle. About an hour and a half to two hours, which is greatly less time than a two-day, a two-day two that's you know eight hours a day for two days, and typically it's going to be five and a half. So a huge savings on that without without any numbers to. Spent with probation officers. You have to go through prison, and they come out on parole. How much money do we spend on those parole officers that are having to manage these folks as they get out of the system? So maybe next time I'll have some numbers on that. But uh, I tell you the the money things has got to be pretty incredible.
1: Mm. Well, Greg, I, uh, we were having a, a slight technical issue there. I know you had to call in on your cell phone tonight because of a uh, uh, phone battery technical issue with your landline. Yeah. So I just, yeah, we, we caught most of those statistics, I believe, and I think what you were trying to say, which I think probably everyone heard, was that we don't yet have uh, financials um, that, that reflect the huge savings Even in the trajectory moving forward, like you, I think you were sharing about the gargantuan amount of time that it takes to, you know, just for officer hours. uh, Not to mention the cost of, you know, of imprisonment of jail time. Um, I know that the low estimate for imprisonment is at least thirty-two thousand dollars a year, and that's Mm -hmm. not if you're a medical. Um, which, you know, those with mental illness and other complex issues can be as high as $70,000 per year, and that's right. on the taxpayer's bill. So mm-hmm. um, there's there's an incredible evidence here that we're, even though you may not have dollar amounts right at this moment, that we're preventing something in that department.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: Right. So, uh, you know, I just... Um, Again, would like to invite the council members tonight to join in the conversation if you'd like, pressing one on your telephone keypad or one if you're coming in from Skype. Uh, up until we close tonight's council, join the conversation if you so wish. So um, I'd like to talk for a moment too, Greg, about uh, the, pr- the school-to-prison pipeline conversation and also uh, your thoughts on restorative justice in adult cases. Because we know that certainly in our juvenile systems, and, and not just here in North America, but um, in places like New Zealand, uh, there's a strong case for restorative justice that has been in motion. And they don't even, I don't think they necessarily even call it restorative justice in their systems there. It just is, it's community conferencing, and it's, it's showing statistics over the arc of time, like the ones that you're sharing, and even in violent cases. So um, that's kind of a broad-sweeping, open-ended question there. Um, if you could start maybe with, uh, with the youth um, comparative to adult cases.
2: Yeah, I've done the, you know, I would say the majority have been the youth cases. And um, part of that fault lies in the impression that I had when the system was presented to me as a new officer was that it was only for first time offenders and that it was for youth. But I later came to find that that wasn't the case, that they would accept even adult cases. And uh, I had my first experience with an adult case when, um, as most cities have, there's a large amount of prescription fraud for you know the controlled substances, the painkillers, the Oxycontin, the Vicodin, like and on goes the list, and I had a large case built on an unknown individual who was just moving from Walgreens pharmacy to King Super's pharmacies, you know, across the city. In fact, the metro area here, um, with stolen and falsified prescriptions in order to obtain the narcotics. Um, I had a lucky break in the case and was able to identify the the individual and uh, met with the individual. Um, and I had eight, seven or eight felony charges um, that I could prove, and there were many more. And I was prepared to, you know, send this person to the jail with the felony counts and let them spend their time in the system until I found out a little bit more about the individual. And uh, she was a, she was a mother of two children, I believe, and she was a full-time choir director. And she had a very supportive family that came in with her and were upset, and but, you know, crying in her support. And I realized at that point that, you know, I've only ever dealt with, with youth, but what makes her any different? She was she could have been my wife. You know, she could have been my, my neighbor. She was a, a normal person with a, a normal, a pretty good life. And she had just become, you know, Hooked on the the painkillers after a mm-hmm. surgery, and it got it got out of hand. And so I put her through that process, and uh, it went, went very well. It was it was nice to see, you know, to break into that felon realm with the adults. And, and and I'll say it again: she she could have been my wife. She could have been my neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that that's a point that more people need to get to. That people commit crimes; it doesn't make them criminals. Some people who commit crimes truly are criminals, but not everybody who who does is is going to make a life of it if we can get some sort of an intervention in there so
1: mm. that's a powerful statement um, so what about the the school to prison pipeline it It feels like it ties back to that huge realization that you had at the beginning that you shared with us uh, at the beginning of our our time tonight around um, the The realization of the fate of these very young boys actually um in that situation that you described
2: right, yeah with that if had i had I charged all of those young boys um or charged anybody with any case at that age, they weren't like I said in the video they they weren't criminals, they had just committed a crime, but as most people know, once we put somebody into the criminal justice system with criminal charges, it it can change them and make them feel like they are the criminal that, that the policemen said they were and that the criminal justice system said they were. And they've got a piece of paper that follows them around the rest of their life that when they apply for a job can remind them that we all view them as criminals and as you know, even lower than second class citizens. So it doesn't give it doesn't give them a good chance to feel good about themselves and to not continue with that activity if if you call someone a criminal long enough, what does that person become? They become a criminal, so we're only forcing them into or I shouldn't say we're forcing them because it's their decision but we're assisting them in their slide into a life as a criminal and spending the rest of their their time in and out of the system and that's just uh, something I don't believe in anymore. I guess since I I saw the light, to borrow the phrase. <laughs>
1: oh well, it, it it definitely is a a paradigm shift of sorts, isn't it? Um, the realization that is. you had, and and certainly we can deeply honor and respect the positions of those that that have resistance. They have questions. They haven't seen it in action and right. um these th- th- these are the ways in which a new system of sorts can can move forward and i'm i'm just wondering if you want to comment on you know what's ahead what do you see happening here in not only in Colorado i know there's a restorative justice bill actually on the table the second one of its uh well it's not the same thing but it's certainly um another bill that Our representative here in Colorado, Pete Lee, is championing um, that 's up for a vote in April, so can you talk a little bit about perhaps that bill and and um, if you wish, or just in general what's ahead for restorative justice in in law enforcement and correctional systems in the United States?
2: I think based on what i 've seen and mm-hmm. in, in the path that it's taking that it, it doesn 't have any choice but to grow. Um, You know, just in my experience with Longmont Police Department, it started out as this, you know, very small thing that people resisted to now, um, I wanna say hundreds of cases every year that we refer to our folks. We keep them extremely busy. Um, So I see it growing there, and I know what what, uh, Representative Lee had been working on and, you know, spreading it actually into once somebody is actually incarcerated um, in prison for a crime, and allowing the process to continue even after they have been charged, to to allow people to heal, you know, both the offender and the victim. So I completely support um, what Pete Lee's been up to um, in the legislature. I wish the legislature would spend more time on on good topics such as that. So, mm-hmm. I, I, in a nutshell, I see it growing, but I think as a system, it's just on the law enforcement level. We need to do, we need to do something more, and I mentioned it earlier. We, we need to, whether it's going out and finding officers that believe in it and getting a core group in each you know, local jurisdiction or every state that departments can rely on or they can reach out to to come and, and talk to their troops about it. Because one thing about as far as police officers is that they're, just based on who they are, they're not going to listen real hard to anybody else coming in to tell them how great the system is, like if you were to do so. But they will listen to somebody who's in their line of work, somebody that they that they can respect or see themselves as being and see that maybe they could make that breakthrough too. So
3: I don't know. Nicely. Do you,
2: work on a core group of uh, ambassadors, maybe. Yes.
1: I think that's a, a powerful idea. And again, um, you point to one of the facets of, of your role um, being so powerful. I think that that's why I was so inspired by you know the, this video presentation, as well as obviously the work that you're doing and the role that, that you can potentially continue to develop and play as a voice from within. For restoring mm-hmm. justice, you know, I have so much respect for you, and I just think you have a lot of courage too, to be kind of on the leading edge here, at least in my view, um, as a, you know, a very talented officer, um, dedicated, devoted, former, you know, army, served in the army. Just all these aspects that you have in place um, that you've committed your life to, that people can relate to. You know, people yeah. can relate to what you've done and um, certainly to the fact that that you were very resistant at first. And so I think you have a lot, a lot behind you in being able to be a spokesperson or an ambassador, as you say, of restorative justice. And I'm certainly more than willing to back you up in providing you the tools to do virtual presentations or so forth if you ever – need some some support on that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's something we should pursue.
1: Well, you know what, Greg? It's just been such an honor to host you tonight here on Restorative Justice on the Rise. And um, on behalf of the Peace Alliance, just thanking everybody who has participated from wherever you're calling in from tonight. And we hope to see you next week as we host Evelyn Zeller of rj for all and um, in the coming weeks, we have some great guests lined up. And near future, we also will be talking with Representative Pete Lee, by the way, and uh, other, other really hot guests from around the conversation, um, global conversation. So please come back next week, same time, same place. Um, sign up at dopeace.us. Uh, scroll over the Restorative Justice tab, and also I just want to say tonight we're not going to try out the video um, technology, but we're going to keep working on that and make sure it's available for us. But in order to see the video that I've referenced tonight, all you have to do is go to DoPeace.us, scroll down on the Restorative Justice tab to RJ Resources, and on that page you'll see the video. And I hope that you'll enjoy that. It's it's a powerful testament And it's about nine minutes long. There's a lot of good stuff in there. So until next week, uh, thank you again. Master Police Officer Greg Ruprecht with us tonight. Thank you. Good night, everyone.